Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning, everyone. Our first case this morning is Oak versus Intagon National Insurance Company, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, uh, Chief Justice and Associate Justices, uh, my name is Brent Adams, and I am from the Harnett County Bar, uh, representing the plaintiff, Tammy Hope, Hope along with my associate, uh, Diana Devine, who I don't seem to see on this uh, screen, but she will not be uh, arguing. I'll be doing the argument, but we're both together representing Tammy Hope. Uh, may it please the court. It, this court in some 244 years has never issued an opinion based upon uh, a definition or a statement of what is the proof necessary in order to recover punitive damages for an insurance company's failure to pay a justifiable claim. Mr. Adams, before you go too far, did you intend to reserve time for rebuttal? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. I would like to reserve 10 minutes, if I may. Thank you. Um, the citizens of North Carolina and businesses very much need a definite guideline from the court, a definite statement on that issue. Insurance company bad faith, we contend, is widespread and rampant throughout North Carolina. Individuals and insurance companies plan their financial future and businesses based upon the promises that they buy from an insurance company. They rely upon an insurance company to deliver on its promises because after all, that's the only thing insurance company sells is a promise. And when a promise is, uh, is, is, uh, when an insurance company in bad faith fails to live up to its promise, punitive damages are needed in order to persuade insurance companies uh, to do the right thing. The law needs to be such that it's more expensive to do the wrong thing than do the right thing. Because after all, if, a, if, a, if an individual who purchases a promise from an insurance company uh, cannot rely upon that insurance company to fulfill its promises, uh, it, it could be a traumatic situation and the public needs to rely upon that. Now, not saying, of course, that all insurance companies are this way, but we understand, and for those of us who practice in this area of law know that insurance bad faith does occur on a fairly regular basis. And without punitive damages, there is no real incentive for an insurance company to do the right thing. Because after all, Tammy Hope, a lady from Sampson County, if she goes through state uh, through the trial court, goes through the appellate court, and ends up winning, but the only thing she, the insurance company has to pay is what they should have paid from day one, that's really no incentive uh, to do the right thing. And some insurance companies, some individuals in some insurance companies need that incentive to uh, to make our insurance system work and so that they can adequately plan their financial lives. Um, this court came close to issuing a decision to tell us when punitive damages is, is proper, when an insurance company fails to pay a valid claim. In Newton versus Standard Fire and Insurance Company, the court, however, found that in that case, there was uh, no identifiable tort and therefore punitive damages could not be allowed. And so holding it wrote, we need not now decide whether a bad faith refusal to pay a justifiable claim by an insurance, by an insurer might give rise to punitive damages. No bad faith is claimed here. But then it goes on to say, the court goes on to say, had plaintiff claimed that after due investigation by defendant, it was determined that the claim was a valid, was valid, and the defendant nevertheless refused to pay, or that the defendant refused to make any investigation at all, 
and that the defendant's refusal were in bad faith with an intent to cause further damage to the plaintiff, a different question would be presented. And in this case, Tammy Hope has brought to this court such a different question. In the 46 years since the court decided Newton, this court has never again spoken on the issue. When does a bad faith refusal to pay a justifiable claim by an insurance company gives rise to punitive damages? We contend, if Yana pleases, that the allegations in Tammy Holt's complaint uh, provides this court that different situation such that this court can and should issue a decision that Mrs. Hope is entitled to go to the jury on her claim for punitive damages. Now, of course, this is uh, decided on summary judgment and the allegations in Ms. Hope's complaint, which was verified by her, must be taken as absolutely true with all emphasis, with all inferences decided in her favor. So, what um, are those allegations and are they sufficient to bring this case within the rule allowing punitive damages, which of course is a question of law. So, the facts set out in her, in her complaint, which again was verified by way of a separate affidavit offered in support of our motion for summary judgment, uh, these, these facts are alleged. It is undisputed that Mrs. Hope had collision insurance. It's undisputed that her car was involved in a collision. It's undisputed that she reported the collision to the insurance company. The allegation is that the defendant refused to pay her claim after recognizing that it was a valid claim. Further, she alleged that the defendant failed to deal, deal fairly and act in good faith. And that the defendant insurance company refused to pay in bad faith without an honest disagreement or an innocent mistake. She further alleged gross negligence and willful insult. She alleged that the defendant denied the claim without any factual basis and in an oppressive manner, and that the defendant's conduct shows a reckless and wanton disregard of the plaintiff's rights. Further, that the refusal to pay the claim after the defendant recognized the plaintiff had a valid claim, that, that the defendant refused to pay the claim after it recognized that she had a valid claim, and that the plaintiff acted, that the defendant acted in total disregard of the plaintiff's rights, that the insurance company's actions were rude and oppressive, which uh, constitutes aggravated conduct. Aggravated conduct gives rise to punitive damages. So we Mr. can Mr. Mr. Adams, you you have recited the allegations of the complaint is verified by your client. I've read the affidavit, looked at the complaint. What? Aside from general allegations of rudeness, oppression, that type of thing, what facts are alleged in the complaint that would support those allegations? Or what facts are asserted in the affidavit aside from those conclusions that would support the allegations that have been made? Well, I, I believe I cited those. I, you know, the, the, um, the inferences are uh, well, well for for example you've alleged rudeness and depression what facts underlie those allegations as set out either in the complaint or in the uh, affidavit well um failing to pay the claim itself i mean i mean i mean is there anything is there anything other than one a failure to pay the claim and second a contention that the uh failure to the claim was erroneous. Well, the wheel is that they knew that the claim was valid and did not uh, did not um, uh, pay the claim. Okay, other, 
and okay other 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 than that is there is there i mean so basically basically your your bad faith in 75-1.1 claim rests on claim was presented properly the company refused to pay it uh and that their failure to uh pay the claim knowing that they were supposed to pay it that that's the factual allegation upon which your bad faith in 75-1.1 and punitive damage claims rest and that and that they failed to properly investigate okay okay and um although it was not alleged you know it, it, then i think the and i'm going to argue that there was no that the defendant presented no evidence uh, but that if their claim file should constitute evidence, and we say it shouldn't, but if the court should determine that that's valid evidence, then um, the um, uh, their claim file is full of rudeness and oppression, but I'm not going to rely upon that because we contend that that claim file should not even, it is not in evidence, it should not be. Considered. Well, that, that the claim file, at least as I understand the record, was presented to the trial court. And no objection was lodged at the hearing on the summary judgment motion to the trial court to the tendering of that information to the trial court. Am, am I missing something, or is that what the record reflects? No, that's true. Okay. That's true. So, aren't, but, aren't, so there, aren't there aren't there cases that say that if documents or other information are tendered to the trial court in the summary judgment motion, that those items can be considered uh, uh, in the absence of uh, uh, objection, even if they're not included in an affidavit or otherwise right. properly verified? I believe that's right, John. Okay, all right. So, just just trying to make sure I'm understanding. Thank okay. you. So, so, and we've argued in our brief that that, that strengthens our case. Right. That, um, that the, the, you know, for instance, for instance, if a few things in the, if, if that, if that is, if the court decides that that is before the, the court to be considered, then we also have such things as that four days after the collision, uh, the insurance company authorized payment of a rental car, which is part of her claims, claim for a rental car. They authorized payment of it, yet they didn't pay it. And that four days after the collision, they computed the damage to the car at $4,000.81. They, so they computed the damage, and there's no issue about collision. Then nine days after the collision, the insurance company offered her $3,483 to pay her claim, yet they didn't pay her claim. And um, we say that by, that by February 24th, four days after the collision, the claim file shows that the liability was reasonably clear. So we think that that is additional evidence of bad faith. So, um, and if I would... Uh, I may uh, say further that the going back to the Newton case, that case held that. Well, before you go back to Newton, uh, Mr. Adams, mm -hmm. when you say that the claim was offered to be paid, but it wasn't paid, was yeah. it was it not paid? Perhaps because the claimant your client decided to refuse that payment or was there some other reason well what happened i think she she did refuse that offer and offered to submit additional um comps i think that was were her statement that they she offered in the claim file that she offered to send them additional compensation and then a few days later they denied the claim all right, and I assume, therefore, that because the determination was made that the vehicle was a total loss, that the figure that she was seeking would have been greater than the amount that was offered to settle? Well, that was her contention, and but it never got to that point because the insurance company, after we contend, and I think the, the claim file um, supports this contention, that after that uh, um, after that offer was turned down, then they started find way, finding ways to deny the claim after they first recognized it as a as a valid claim. And 
how does bad faith come into this if the insurance company offered to settle and then with more time to investigate there was a determination made at least by the insurance company with which i know you take issue that uh, there was evidence that the uh, client of yours had run into a stationary object is that just merely an aspect of both sides look at this in a different way or otherwise why would it be considered to be bad faith especially in light of the offer that was originally made to settle well the number one the offer was never carried through in other words they never paid anything and uh i i, I apologize to the court and to the this court and to the appellate court and the trial court and to mr guthrie because i'm afraid i created an unnecessary confusion by alleging in my complaint that she was entitled to recover uninsured motorist coverage. Uh, I dealt with that issue before with respect to property, to personal injury. And so I thought I knew what the insurance policy said, but I didn't, I should have read it more closely. Under no factual situation would she ever be entitled to uninsured motorist coverage because uh, there was, um, it was an unidentified vehicle and with respect to property damage as distinguished from personal injury she would not be entitled to recover so this whole business about this investigation that showed whether it was a a um, uh, whether it was she had a stationary object or whether she hit another vehicle or another vehicle hit her it's totally irrelevant to the collision claim and we alleged the collision claim from day one and uh, yes. paragraph 18. Can, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want when you're talking, since you talked about, you mentioned investigation, I wanted to ask you something about that. I'm a little confused about what, whether there is or is not a claim for um, some kind of action for failure to investigate. The Court of Appeals majority says that plaintiff suggested that the defendant failed to conduct an investigation, but she's backed off that allegation and then um, seems to indicate that defendant sworn evidence shows it conducted an investigation um, that and then denied the claim. Do you have a position or a claim based on failure to investigate? And if so, is there sworn evidence in the record to create a genuine issue of fact about that? No, Fiona, please. That's, that's one point that uh, the Court of Appeals said that there was a sworn testimony. There was not. There was not an affidavit. There was no evidence whatsoever um to support that uh, that is a failure to investigate or that there was an investigation uh, they court of appeal said that there was an affidavit you just quoted i can't remember if they said an affidavit or a sworn testimony but in any event there was neither there was never an affidavit there was nothing to support uh the claim that there was an investigation and even, and even if the court should take their claim file as being in evidence and before the court and therefore should be considered, it's still hearsay. There's no, there's no report in the record. All we have is an insurance adjuster said there was an investigation and they say what the investigation showed. That's hearsay. So let me, let me just, just to clarify, is it your argument that if the claim file was in evidence, the one that Justice Irvin was asking you about, that it's not sworn evidence? Well, if, if it's in evidence, uh, my contention is it should not be considered, but if the court considers it in evidence, then it is in evidence. But still, the Court of Appeals apparently relied upon a non-existent affidavit from the defendant. There was none. So we say there was no, yes, they handed up a claim file and we didn't object to it, but uh, we still claim that there was there was no evidence of any of any investigation or any results of any investigation. And well, if, even if there um, were, the Court of Appeals refers to quote sworn evidence. There and was so if they're referring to the claim file, that's not inaccurate, then is it? Well, I think it is. Well, it's certainly not sworn evidence. I forget the term they used, but I don't think that there was any sworn evidence. It was a, it was a group of papers handed up by defense counsel, which he said was the claim file. Nothing's verifying that, but uh, but if, if the court considers that evidence, I still don't, we contend that's still not, uh, no sworn testimony of that, but all of that we contend has nothing to do with this case 
and the confusion was largely with my creation by alleging the UM claim when there was none. What we are dealing here with now is alleged in paragraph 18 of my complaint is a collision claim. That's what it is. That's all it is. That's all it ever has been a collision claim. The defendant did not speak to the collision claim whatsoever, except their claim file does indicate there was a collision. And I think the pleadings alleged there was a collision. Furthermore, the insurance company is relying upon an allegation of fraud. Well, first of all, fraud is an affirmative defense, and under Rule 8, it must be pled. It was not pled. The plaintiff did not, the defendant did not allege um, um, fraud. Now, when it came to the, the hearing on in trial court, there was a statement and argument about an allegation of fraud. But we say, first of all, there's no pleading to, of a fraud, of fraud, and there's no evidence of fraud. But even that alone, that has nothing to do with the real claim here, which is the collision claim. So, um, in Newton, the court said there was no identifiable fraud. I'm sorry, there was no identifiable tort. Um, and um, and it, but here there is an identifiable tort, and the tort is the breach of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing. Now the the court went on to to write that um, it, it talked about the. Um, It says, it says, even where sufficient facts are alleged to make out an identifiable tort, however, the torturous conduct must be accompanied by or partake of some element of aggravation before punitive damages will be allowed. And here, um, and then it goes on to say, such aggravated conduct was early defined to include fraud, malice, such a reckless degree of negligence as indicates a reckless indifference to consequences of oppression, insult, rudeness, caprice, and willfulness. And it cites Baker versus Winslow, a, 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 a case, um, and also which cited home, uh, an 1886 case. So this has been the law since almost the beginning of time. And this case differs from the Newton case in that here, we do have an identifiable tort, which is the tort of uh, uh, that I've just mentioned, and fair to um, uh, act in good faith and deal fairly. Now, since since Newton came down, the court has never uh, again dealt with this issue, but the Court of Appeals has on a number of cases. One is Smith versus Nationwide, where the court held that a five months delay of time between the when the adjuster came to examine the property and the issuance of check and the disparity of the estimates was a sufficient uh, aggravating factor to support punitive damages. In Robinson versus Farm Bureau, delay of seven months until the umpire set the loss and instructed the and, and that the insurance company instructed the building contractor to give a low estimate. The court the, the, the court of appeals said that was sufficient to support punitive damages. Daly versus Enagon where the, the allegation was that the defendant refused to acknowledge the plaintiff's damages estimates, refused to assign its own adjusters, defined the sum of money, uh, offered some of money to neighbors, and other did other things to discredit the claimant. And Von Hagel, the, and they, Von Hagel, the court upheld, uh, said punitive damages were properly alleged when uh, the insurance company ignored two doctors uh, opinions, refused to consult an expert, and refused to pay after previously offering in, indicating that they would pay. Those That was held to be uh, allowable. Th that conduct was held to support punitive damages. In Lovell versus Nationwide, the Plum Forgot case, where the insurance company said, well, we just plum forgot to pay their, the med pay. And also, there was an allegations that they that they used that as a wish to negotiate the wrongful death claim and made disparaging comments about the per, the property the, the wrongful death case. In Miller versus Nationwide, uh, the the evidence was the defendant couldn't refuse to pay the full UIM coverage, 
that they refused to effectuate a prompt, fair, and equitable settlement of the claim when liability was reasonably clear. The defendant failed to have sufficient information to, to, to claim not, the defendant claimed not to have sufficient information, yet when the, the defendant, the insurance company claimed not to have sufficient information. And then when the, the insured gave additional information, they continued to deny, deny the claim. And that they withheld payment. The allegation was they withheld payment in order to converse payment of other money. So, yeah. Mr. Adams, I was just listening to something there in, uh, I think, the last case that you were reciting uh, that you cited in terms of talking about there was uh, acknowledgement by the insurance company that, uh, based upon its investigation in that particular case, that there was a claim that should have been paid, but it wasn't paid. Uh, how would that line of thinking comport with this case? As I jotted down a note, and I, I think I'm right, that you said that there was no evidence that there was an investigation conducted in this case. So how would those cases that you cited relate to this case if you're claiming bad faith that the insurance company here should have honored the claim based upon an investigation based upon the law in those cases you cited, yet you say there was no investigation here to determine that there was a valid claim. Well, we're saying there was no. Now, they, they talk about the investigation into the UM claim. We say here there was a, a, a clear uh, application, allegation, complaint for the collision portion of the coverage. They, they never never even spoke to the collision portion all at all. Okay. So you are contending you are contending then here just so I can make sure I understand the allegation. You are contending here that the insurance company did in fact investigate the collision claim? No, we say they did not. They did they, they say that there was a report indicating that the collision in question was not with another vehicle. And they used even though that had nothing to do with this claim, although we, we as I said earlier, it's my fault for alleging that. But the UM claim has nothing to do with this case. Under no factual situation could she ever recover the UM claim. But the collision claim was valid from day one. They didn't investigate the collision. Well, they they did they did give an estimate as what the what the claim was worth, what the damage to the car was worth. They admitted it was collision coverage. Admitted she applied for it, but then denied the claim. So we when you said earlier, uh, I think you were responding to either justice. Senator Justice Irvin, that there was no evidence in this case that there was an investigation conducted. Did I jot that down wrong, or was well, there just some detail that I neglected to jot down as well in terms of the kind of investigation that was done here? Well, if I said I, I misspoke, there, you know, there is a, a, an estimate of investigation, primarily investigating the UM claim. Right. And, and then they investigated the value of the car and made determinations of the value of the car and made an offer, but then they didn't pay without we say without without proper justification. I believe my time is close to up. Does that and I have two minutes left or is my in my argument? So um, that's basically my argument. I reserve the rest of the time for rebuttal if I may. Uh, thank you, Council. Uh, we'll hear from the appellee. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby, and uh, good morning again, Your Honors. Uh, let me first say that it's my honor to appear before you on behalf of my client. Uh, and I think it's important that I that I at least mention at the outset uh, the issue that is not before you today, and that is whether there was a breach of this insurance contract. Uh, the Court of Appeals determined. Uh, upon their review of the record and upon their consideration of Judge uh, Stevens's rulings, that there was, and because of the of the disparate assertions regarding the the cause of the damage to Ms. Hope's vehicle, that there was an issue of fact there that would have to be resolved at a trial, and that it, that ruling by the Court of Appeals has not been contested. So this matter will will be resolved. Uh, uh, at the trial level, either on simply the breach of contract action or by other claims that have been presented, uh, depending upon your ruling. Um, but, but here's, there's been a good bit said about investigation or no investigation. I think it's significant 
that I at least point out to you what happened. Uh, in, in late February 2016, Ms. Hope reported to Intigon National Insurance Company, her insurance company, a claim for damage to her 2005 Dodge Magnum. Uh, she asserted that her car was struck by a vehicle that was backing out of a median on a four-lane highway. Uh, and the other vehicle then sped away from the scene. The driver was a hit-and-run driver. Of that hit and run vehicle was was never identified. It's important to note that Ms. Hope was never able to produce any physical evidence of the other vehicle, nor any witnesses to the incident. In fact, I'll note here and 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 let me say the as a as a as a side note here, the reason that I elected on behalf of my client to present the entire claim file of Enigon to the trial court at summary judgment uh, was so that the court could have a full picture of the investigation and the, and the handling of this particular claim. Uh, I will say that that, uh, that the entire claim file had previously been produced in discovery, as was indicated in the transcript at the hearing. So there was no, nothing there to really, uh, to, and again, as, as you pointed out, there was no objection to those materials in full being presented to and considered by the trial court at the hearing on summary judgment. Uh, so, <clears throat> but, but, and in that regard, there was one interesting note in that claim file that I think is significant too. It points out that um, there was an interview of the passenger in the vehicle with Ms. Hope, uh, Mr. McDowell. Uh, and even he was not able to confirm what happened. He said that when when the when whatever happened, he said his head was down and he didn't see what happened. He so he couldn't even confirm the statement provided by Ms. Hope regarding the nature of the damage to her vehicle. Anyway, based upon their initial investigation and examination of the of the vehicle of Ms. Hope, uh, they determined and because of the disparity in, in what they saw from the vehicle and the way Ms. Hope described the, the incident. They ordered an independent impact analysis, which is uh, a fairly common situation these days when there's some contested facts regarding how an accident occurs. Well, that analysis, as one of you has pointed out, it, uh, indicated that the vehicle or showed evidence that the vehicle had struck a vertically oriented fixed object while traveling in a forward motion, which was extremely inconsistent with the account given by Ms. Hope of an unidentified vehicle backing into her off of a median on a four-lane highway. Well, based upon the, the property damage exclusion to the uninsured motorist coverage of the personal auto policy uh, and the apparent misrepresentation by Ms. Hope regarding the cause of the damage to her car and their inability to confirm anything that Ms. Hope had said about the, uh, the incident, in the guy elected to deny her claim at that time. And, and Mr. Mr. Guthrie, before you before you go further, help me help me understand something about the way this policy works. Uh, Mr. Adams has conceded. Uh, I realize that concession did not had not happened by the time of the summary judgment hearing, but he's now conceded that he's not entitled to recover anything on behalf of his client under the uninsured motorist provisions of the policy. Uh, he is asserting, as I understand it, essentially a claim under uh, collision policy. Has the company denied the collision claim? Initially, they did not. Once they conducted their investigation and then compared the findings of that investigation to what Ms. Hope had said, they determined, and this is the language in the policy that they relied upon, uh, which is in the under the general conditions or general provisions part F of the personal auto policy, which simply says we do not provide coverage for any insured who has made a fraudulent statement or engaged in fraudulent conduct in connection with any accident or loss for which coverage is sought under the policy. All right, so, so the, you have denied it under the basis of the fraudulent misrepresentation. That was the only basis they really had. And the only thing I can contend that was the, the basis for the denial at that point. Because <laughs> and, and, okay, now that, now that I've got my facts straight, uh, help me 
understand, at least as I understand it, for collision purposes, it does not matter how the damage occurred. Is that correct? Uh, and we and we always conceded at summary judgment that if this had been made as a as a strictly collision claim for property damage in the normal course, it would have been investigated. But but the actual cause of the damage as long as it fell within the specific terms of the policy and was not excluded under one of those exclusions would have been paid and and i can I, I guess the problem i'm having and i'm hoping that you can enlighten me a little bit as to how this policy works at least in your view i understand why a representation that the damage resulted from uh, a, mo a moving vehicle as compared to a stationary object would affect a, a, a claim under uninsured coverage. How does that, it, how, do, how is that a fraudulent claim uh, under the collision portion of the policy in the given that apparently it doesn't matter how the uh, damage occurred for purposes of collision? Is there is there some material, I mean, I guess where I'm trying to get to is, is there some requirement that there be a, uh, causal relationship between the uh, the representation and the type of coverage that's involved in order to permit the denial of a claim on the basis of this exclusion? Well, it, first of all, let me say the timing of this is, is significant. This, this notion of a collision claim never came up until, number one, it was addressed in the, in the complaint that was filed. Okay. Uh, so, so it's, it's, it's your contention. It's your just to make sure I'm following you, Mr. Guthrie. It's your contention then that no claim was made under the collision coverage as of the time of the denial. Is that exactly. that's okay? Exactly. Thank you. Because and and you'll notice even for that matter, even in her affidavit at summary judgment, she reiterates and reaffirms uh, by by she I mean Ms. Hope, the plaintiff appellate, that this was a two vehicle collision caused by a the hit and run driver that was never identified. So even at the time of the summary judgment hearing, there was this was strictly considered as a UMPD or as we call it, or uninsured motorist property damage claim. Right. That was that fell outside the coverage. So 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 your your contention is there was never any collision claim advanced that could be denied until the filing of the complaint. Until the filing of the complaint. That's correct. That was not presented, and I believe a, a review of the claim file will indicate that because it was. Matter of fact, you'll see in the if you take the time to review the claim file, and it's 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 a bit of a slog. But the, the a lot. I, of I, I was I was going to say reading that part of the record was it was highly enjoyable. <laughs> Welcome to my world, Justice Irwin. Uh, but in any event, there there's a good bit of of information in there about how these other claims related to this action were handled. There were UM uninsured motors bodily injury claims that were paid. Uh, there were other claims that, but but there was never any collision claim made until it first appeared in the complaint that was filed after, which was some two and a half years after the uh, the investigation had concluded and the matter was had already been closed as far as Indigon was concerned. Well, what was before the insurance company at the time that the settlement? claim was determined and that was actually the information as to the accident they had not they had not made any determination at that point as to the actual cause of the of the of the end of the damage apparently the initial field adjuster according to the notes um, examined the damage uh, without any other information and then made a, in essence, a, an offer to settle the property damage claim at that point. But as you pointed out, Justice Morgan, that offer was was rejected. Uh, and so the investigation continued, which led to the uh, the disparity here between the, the facts as to the, the, the cause of the collision and also the question as to the uh, the impact analysis, which came sometime later than that. So. And we and we we discuss that in our briefs because it, uh, from time to time investigations do lead to different conclusions, and for an insurance company to simply be held to an initial offer that later is determined to be inappropriate or improper, uh, it basically uh, 
is not fair to the insurance company, frankly, but does not comport with this, with what the statute requires is to conduct a reasonable investigation. Now, so, was, I'm sorry. so was the settlement offer made based upon from the insurance company standpoint, based upon the uninsured motorist claim, the collision claim, just because it was property damage to take care of a customer or some other basis? It was it was basically a, a a customer relation decision, a business decision made at that point to simply pay for the property damage. But once that was rejected and then more facts came to light as far as the, the discrepancies between the how the accident occurred, that led to the further investigation, which then led to the the subsequent denial. Uh, there was never any claim actually addressed under the UM or uninsured motorist property damage because that was clearly uh, was outside the coverage. Did I, did I answer that question, Justice Morgan? Uh, yes, you did. You did. Thank you. Uh, I should point out that in talking about the case, as we've established, there may be there is an issue of fact here regarding breach of contract, and we're prepared to deal with that at the trial level, as the Court of Appeals has has directed us to do. The issue is really for for this court as to whether the actions and the investigation of Enigon and the adjustment of this claim rises to the level of bad faith or unfair and deceptive trade practices. Um, and and, and uh, we have cited several cases that address this question. Uh, the Court of Appeals discusses it, but there's a good bit of a long-standing precedent on the requirement to prove more than simple breach of contract to justify unfair and deceptive trade practices. Uh, the, the let, me, let me ask you a quick question. Um, as I, and correct me if I'm understanding you incorrectly, because that's entirely possible. Um, as I understand, your position is that the company did not know that there was a claim um, for under collision insurance until the complaint was filed. Is that right? That's is, that's the information that I have, and it's from from reviewing the the claim file. They basically had a report of a of a hit and run, hit and run collision with an unidentified driver, and that was what directed their investigation. Okay, and um, once the complaint was filed, and that you were and the insurance company was informed that there was a collision um, insurance issue. Was the claim? I can't tell whether the response in the answer is just to refer to the insurance policy language or whether it's to say that there is a reason to deny the collision claim. Can you help me out here? Well, as best I can understand what their what their actions were and what their 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 approach was. Once their impact analysis and their investigation led them to the conclusion that Ms. Hope was not presenting this claim properly. In other words, that she had they reached the conclusion that she had misrepresented the, the facts of the, of, the, of the accident, the collision, whatever may have occurred. And then that they turned toward basically looking at that as a fraudulent misrepresentation, seeking coverage where there, there wouldn't have been any. Now it's, it's it's a convoluted set of facts because if she had made a I can see that if she had made a simple collision claim at the very outset, uh, that likely would have been covered. And uh, not to go and think to things too much outside the record, but there were attempts to resolve the claim with her even after the complaint was filed uh, unsuccessfully. Well, so this is to follow up on a question Justice Urban asked you a while ago. Isn't is it true that if that it doesn't really matter what caused the damage for purposes of collision coverage? Uh, well, there are certain exclusions. I mean, but if it falls within the, the, the definition of collision in the policy, then that is covered if she has collision coverage. And in fact, she did in this case. So she would have had collision coverage. So was the, was the collision coverage claim here once the complaint came to your attention ever denied? It was denied for the based on fraudulent misrepresent fraudulent conduct by Ms. Hope and Miss what they can they believed was a misrepresentation of the cause of the of the damage. 
that went to the UM claim. The UM claim, yes, ma'am. Well, has has the has the has a collision claim ever been denied on the basis of fraudulent misrepresentation? I thought I was straight on this, but maybe I may not be. Well, they did. Once once the collision once the claim was presented through counsel as a collision claim. At that point, they had already reached the decision that this was fraudulent conduct following the general language under the general provisions of the policy. And the one we talked to the one we talked about a minute ago. Yes, sir. And the nature of that of the collision had been misrepresented. So they took the position at that point that there was that they didn't they simply denied her claim. Period. Well, are, are they asserting with respect to the collision claim that because uh, a misrepresentation was made as to the reason that the damage to the vehicle occurred was false that the exclusion applies to a collision claim even though the reason that the damage occurred would have been wouldn't have been wouldn't matter in essence yes that's correct they, they took a position why, why does the policy allow? Why is that a false representation for purposes of the policy? Is there just no materiality or component to the false representation exclusion? Well, there's there's not indicated in the. I mean, you would think there would be, and it only makes sense that there would be. There have to be some material reliance upon a misrepresentation, and Inagon did rely upon the misrepresentation to the extent they conducted their investigation. And obviously, following it through to its normal conclusion, which but resulted any, in. But any denial of a of a collision claim didn't occur until after the complaint was filed. That's correct. Okay. Am, am I correct in understanding that uh, there were either perceived or actual uh, benefits to the insured for pursuing things the way? They initially did, or the plaintiff initially did, and that there was actually um, there were actually some claims paid based upon the initial characterization. Uh, whereas, if it had simply been a collision claim, those claims would not have been paid. Well, and and you'll indicate it's interesting you asked that, Justice Newby, because you'll you'll see in the uh, in the dissent in the court at the court of appeals, Justice Murphy, uh, Judge Murphy, delves into one of the specific notes talking about some of the what he refers to as alternative theories, but what I can I contend were simply various approaches and various ways to try to analyze why this claim was presented the way that it was. And, and in truth, if the claim had been presented and accepted as an uninsured motorist claim, that would have opened up additional coverages for bodily injury damages to a to passengers or even to the to the Ms. Hope, Ms. Hope the insured herself. However, if she had been if, if the accident had been her fault, uh, as the impact analysis seemed to indicate. Uh, then she would not have been entitled, and there would have been other claims made in, in a different manner that may have prevented some additional coverage. So there was, if, if there was a method to this, uh, we're just speculation on what her uh, uh, motivations might have been, I suppose, but it would have made a difference if the claim had been considered as an uninsured motorist claim versus strictly a collision claim that could have eventually impose liability upon Ms. Hope, frankly. Follow-up question to that. Is it, is it then, is it accurate that to date, no actual dollars have been paid to the plaintiff? That's correct. I just wanted to be clear about that. Thank you. And, but there have been dollars paid to, because there was an, and it got recognized uninsured motorist bodily injury claims, and the claim file indicates this, there have been claims paid for bodily injury arising from this same incident. To the plaintiff? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. To the to one of the passengers. Okay. So so these were, if you will, claims based on the plaintiff's policy 
and based on the way it was presented, that were paid to folks that allegedly were um, passengers in the vehicle. That's correct. And there was even an issue in the investigation, and there's there's note of this. Uh, this there was a question as to whether as to who was actually driving the vehicle because of the nature of the damage to the vehicle and the injuries that were claimed by the passenger uh, or the occupants of the vehicle. So that was all part of the investigation and it is apparent from the uh, from the claim file. Uh, again, another reason why we felt it important for in, in, in light of the allegations of inadequate investigation or improper investigation for the court at the trial level <clears throat> and of course your honors to have full access to the investigative file, the claim file, as Ms. Indigon maintained it. Uh, so it, it appears to me that there was uh, um, the, the payments were made to a male passenger and then maybe to a granddaughter. That's correct. So it would have been paid to the plaintiff for the benefit of the granddaughter since she's a minor. I'm not sure if she was the custodian or the or the guardian of the of the minor or not. I, I don't recall that fact. I think I think that's what she had represented to the insurance company is that um, she was the guardian of her, or custodian of her granddaughter. I think I just read that. Very good. And that and that would have in, in that case that would have been the actual course of the payment. I just have a question about the um, status of the claim file as evidence um, at summary judgment. Is it your contention that because there was no objection, it's admissible as a business record and or for the truth of the matters asserted in the record or just for the truth that the record exists? So, in other words, is, is that evidence of what Intagon knew? Or, or is it also evidence that what's asserted in there is actually true? <laughs> well, it's a good question of evidence. Our, our position at summary judgment was that these records had already been produced as business records pursuant to a written discovery request. And so they were already had been exchanged among the parties. And that they were uh, the best evidence of the actions of the, of the defendant in responding to this claim. So uh, for the value that they had to the court as to the specifics, uh, I would leave that to the court's discretion, but they were ever introduced again without objection uh, to the trial judge uh, who uh, presumably reviewed them as, as he saw fit, along with the affidavit presented by the, uh, by the plaintiff appellant. Uh, and, and the point is there is, at this stage, that there is no evidence, either in the affidavit presented by the by the plaintiff appellant, or in the claim file, which indicates that there was an, an intent to deceive, or any type of uh, bad faith or unfair practice that justifies the extraordinary relief of, of punitive damages or unfair and deceptive trade practices. The only, if you look at Look at chapter uh, 58-63-15, which basically sets out the various uh, standards or criteria for uh, fair claim settlement practices. The only one that would even, I believe the plaintiff is even alleged, and the only one that could even arguably apply would be uh, 63-1511F, which is not attempting in good faith to effectuate prompt, fair, and equitable settlement of claims in which liability has become reasonably clear. Well, up until the filing of the complaint in this case, live and, and even at <laughs> maybe perhaps till today, liability has not been made reasonably clear. And as the Court of Appeals pointed out, that's the issue of fact that needs to be resolved at trial. Uh, if, if this claim is a valid claim, uh, it'll be paid with whatever interest may have accrued and subject to whatever cost may be assessed. But that's an issue for yes, the Yes, let me ask you real quick about that. As I understand, and to correct me if I'm wrong, 
that payment under the collision coverage would be made if there's a collision, regardless of whether it was with another vehicle or with a brick wall or something. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I believe that if, if the facts bear out at a trial that this collision, this was a collision claim. Uh, this was a collision as indicated uh, by the impact analysis and by some of the evidence presented, then Intergon would be, if Intergon is found to have breached this contract, it would then pay the collision claim based upon the estimates that are presented at trial and based upon the amount of jury should decide. That's the issue that remains at the trial level. Well, I understood the record and, and again, I, there's, there's a lot of um, stuff in here that's not that easy to interpret, particularly in these record, the claim file. Um, but it, I understood that there was a question about whether the collision occurred as a result of another vehicle or as a result of hitting a stationary object. But I didn't see uh, an issue about whether there actually was some sort of collision with something that damaged the vehicle. Is that wrong? No, I, I think that's that's that's, that's true. <clears throat> Obviously, they they went out and in, in inspected the vehicle. They found damage. The problem was the damage they found was totally inconsistent with the claim that was being made, the description of the claim. So, and is, know, it your, is it your the defendant's position that that provides a basis for denial of the collision claim? It was not just that. That was the that was the initial question that, that or call, that's what called into question the claim by Ms. Hope and her description. But then the further investigation into it, the the lack of witnesses, the lack of any evidence, all of that led them to to apparently to eventually believe that this was a this was a fraudulent presentation by Ms. Hope, and they elected to deny her claim for property damage. Now, that's, and and that was to denial of the collision claim for that reason? Well, we're using the term, it was denial of, da of, of repair for the damage to that vehicle. Let me put it that way. I mean, if she had made the claim, presented the claim as a collision claim at that point, I suspect it would have been handled differently. She did not. She has yet, she has never at this point, except through counsel, presented this as a collision claim. I thought you said that it had been in through the complaint. Look, I was going to say through counsel by the filing of the complaint. I'm sorry, but she has in the filing of the complaint and which led to some eventual other efforts to resolve it, which were unsuccessful. Okay. Thank you. But at least as you understand it, Mr. Guthrie, you, 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 you began your arg argument by pointing out that there was a breach of contract issue to be tried in the trial court, regardless of what we do here with the issue. Uh, at least as currently understood in that remand proceeding B, uh, whether the plaintiff was entitled to recover under the uninsured. What's the issue that's going to be retried for breach of contract? Well, that's a good question, Judge Irvin, because it'll depend on how the evidence comes out at that trial. But I suspect the jury would, depending upon how the, the evidence came out, the jury would be instructed on, on at least two issues. One was, reach its contract with Ms. Hope in failing to pay her for the damage caused to her vehicle. And then as part of that instruction, a trial judge would have to determine instruct the jury on the contract, which would be in evidence, and it would have to be considered whether it was under the uninsured motorist. We would argue that it would not be. Then it would also, they'd have to consider it under the collision coverage. If they considered it file under the collision coverage, they would award the damages. And the God would be responsible for payment of the claim. That's the case that, that remains. And I see that my time is up, but that's yes. the case that remains. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Judge. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Man. Uh, well, first of all, I believe that. I, hate, I, I, I hesitate to say whether it's in the claim file because I don't have total review, recall. But I believe if your honors would look at that claim file, uh, there's no specific designation of whether it's a UIM claim, whether it's a uninsured motorist, a UIM claim or a collision claim. I think the lady just called her insurance company and says, I had a wreck and I need, I need you to pay my claim. 
I don't think there's any delineation on her part as to whether it was, and certainly she didn't understand the significance between uh, whether it was with a collision or with a stationary object. Um, so uh, I, I would I would invite the court to to examine that. I believe that the, the I don't believe you'll find that she specifically said this is a UIM claim UM claim. I don't think she even knows what a UM claim is. So I think she just said. Here, this is my claim. Certainly, the insurance company has some obligation to their insured who pays in premiums to to investigate the claim and and to give her the benefit of whatever's in the policy. They don't have to rear back with and just let and and just depend upon her uh, to to know the insurance policy. It's their obligation to do that as well. And of course, what happened here? They sent this investigator from California to send what I understand is a one-page letter based upon photographs to make this statement and um, and then say, ah, nice try by the insured, but no cigar, which shows, uh, shows a reckless indifference to the rights of their policyholder. In addressing Justice Irvin's question about what the policy says about whether the fraud has to be with respect to that particular claim, I'd invite the court to look at page 11 of the insurance policy the record, page 43, where it says under the heading fraud or, mis or material misrepresentation, the policy provides that we do not provide coverage for any insured who has made a fraudulent statement or engaged in any fraudulent conduct in connection with any accident or loss for which coverage is sought under the policy. Now, we're I'm sorry, counsel, I believe your time's expired as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to both counsel, Madam Clerk. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess for 15 minutes. God save the state and this honorable court.